kids, I'd like if you would to just go back here on the ground. So all the kids right back there, except Jeremiah and Gabe, you can go up to the front. All right, so all the kids, you just get right, sit right here in the aisle, right here, okay? Let's sit behind this ball, okay? We're going to let that ball right there. You just sit behind the ball, you wait there. All right, you guys, I want you to come up here. Okay, and I want you to stand beside each other and put your legs, just put your legs together. That's good. We're going to hope this works. All right. I'm just going to tie this like this. Now, without injuring yourselves, here is what I want you to do. Jeremiah and Gabe, I want you to pick up that ball, but you're not going to go up here. Jeremiah, I want you to go out around out there like that and to come up and grab it from that side and Gabe I want you to go out on that side and go around okay you guys ready you go in your directions ready go all right go oh it broke okay 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 all right all right okay now we hopefully got the point that wasn't supposed to break all right here we go all right now now what I want you to do is I want you to show me some love. Look, look at that. All right. You've got the idea, guys. You wrap your arms around each other, get the love and snuggle up, and in step, I want you to three-legged, it's not a speed contest, but if you want to do that, that's fine, and I want you to both pick up the ball when you get there. You use that hand, you use this hand, pick up the ball up the straight, up the aisle. All right, all right, now you pick up that ball, pick up, hold it up over your heads, all right, victory, okay, thank you guys, you guys can return to your seat, (laughs) all right, easy, we don't want broken ankles, you know what, can someone else do this so I can get moving, all right, I don't know what's going to happen there. All right, kids, you can return to your seats, but I want to make this one point here for the kids and for all of us, really, that if we're, if we're united together, we're tied together, and we're trying to go in different directions, obviously, we all knew where that was going to go. It's only when we wrap our, our arms around each other and when we work together in step to go and to accomplish a goal. Unity is so extremely important in the church, and that's where, uh, that's where we're going to head as soon as our little helpers here get uh, ununified. It's tight, I know. Can you wiggle out of it? You can cut it, yeah, that's fine. You see where creativity gets you. We'll be rolling out of here at a 115. All right. Today we're going to close up the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ, the most prominent prayer that we have in Scripture of Jesus from John 17. And John devoted five chapters to the upper room. And in John 18, the mood will actually darken 
They leave the upper room, head to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas returns to them with, a, with an armed mob. And uh, during his last hours, Jesus prayed for unity among his disciples, both theirs and ours. Our unity is very important to Jesus. Uh, disunity can cause two of the fastest runners in the world to lose a three-legged race to kindergartners. We all need to hear this loud and clear. Our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ impacts the focus, faithfulness, and fruitfulness of our mission as a church. Jesus prayed for our oneness so that the world would know and believe that God sent him and that God loves his people. If we want the world to know the supremacy of Christ, we must work together as one. Many things are going to threaten our unity, different opinions, preferences, and perspectives, sin, disagreements, accusation, gossip, selfishness, pride, and the list goes on and on. Our sin threatens our unity. So we must be humble and we must be penitent to preserve our unity. We may differ on football teams. We may differ on music styles, politics, skin color, or the finer points of theology, but we are one in Christ. We may differ on the non-essential things, many of the non-essential things perhaps, but we are one in the essentials, one in Christ. Jesus, not our preferences, make us one. He is the one shepherd of the one flock. John eleven fifty two tells us that Jesus died to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Jesus lived and died so that we could be united as one. Here are nine main observations from the last seven verses of John 17. And you'll notice that all of these points are essential absolutely essential to our unity, to true unity. None of these things are preferences. None of these things are tastes. We are one in belief. We are one in belief. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Each imperative of Jesus here reveals what Jesus was asking for. There are a few. In verse 1, he prayed, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse 5, glorify me in your own presence. Jesus asked the father to glorify him so that he could in turn glorify the father. In verse 11, he prayed, holy father, keep them in your name. And he asked that for the purpose of their unity, their oneness. Now, verse 15 is not an imperative, but Jesus asked for the Father to keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. He wanted all of that. Jesus wanted all of that. Why? Well, verse 20 and 21 tell us that they may all be one. One with God, one with each other, and for the purpose of the world knowing Jesus, that God sent Jesus And the love of God, he asked for unity and the advance of gospel truth. He asked for the disciples and for future believers too. Uh, Those who would believe through the word of the apostles. Believe in verse 20 is actually the present tense. It's not future, but it takes on a future meaning. Jesus prayed for future believers. That means Jesus prayed for us the last night of his life. 
He prayed for us. He didn't pray for the world. He prayed for those whom God had given him, even us, which shows his particular love and his particular devotion for believers. What unifies all believers? Well, belief, faith, not just faith in anything, not just belief in anything we want to believe, belief in Christ. An atheist and a Christian may share many earthly interests, many temporal things that they enjoy in this world, but they have absolutely no true unity in Christ. Beliefs are necessary boundaries that we must have. There is no genuine unity without belief in Christ. As a Christian, you are one with Chinese Christians all across the world that you have never met, more one with them than you are with your weekend buddy who doesn't believe in Jesus. But not only that, we are one in the Word. Muslims believe in Jesus. Jews believe in Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. The question is, which Jesus? The real one or the invented one? Clearly defined doctrine is crucial. What word was Jesus referring to in verse 20? It was the word that God gave him, that he gave his disciples, and that the disciples went and proclaimed in the world. Essentially, the entire New Testament, which was the the exposition or the expounding of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus sent his disciples into the world to speak the, the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, a word that they had received, and they even saw, and that word, that gospel, is the means by which God saves men and women and unites them to himself. Jesus authenticates every word of the New Testament, but so do eyewitnesses. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. True unity comes through belief in God's word. It's cool, too, that Jesus was confident in the effectiveness of the gospel proclamation and mission of his disciples, People would believe in their word. It absolutely was certain. There were more people out there that they would go and they would reach and they would win. Why? Because God had given them to Jesus to redeem. Election guarantees success in evangelism. Never forget that. Many evangelical Christians would actually like to diminish the importance of doctrine. Clearly defined doctrinal lines Because many people believe that that isolates people. That puts people on the in and and puts some people on the out. And so they want to blur doctrinal purity and doctrinal lines because it seems so intolerant and it seems so exclusivistic. Who are we to decide who's in and who's out? But the reality is the Bible sets clear doctrinal parameters from which genuine unity flow. Without those doctrinal parameters, true unity is destroyed. We have no unity. It is the word of God through Jesus, through the apostles, that must be believed for true salvation and unity to exist. It's it's really sad that so many professing Christians don't know what the Bible teaches. They don't know. 
They don't know what's in there. They don't really know what Christians are supposed to believe, and therefore they think they're Christians, when in reality, when you evaluate their belief system, it is way opposed to what is taught clearly in Scripture. They oppose the apostolic word and witness. You have to know the Bible to believe the Bible, and you have to believe the Bible to be one with Christ and his church. So let me ask you very fairly, do you know what's in the Bible and do you believe what you study there? Are you sure that what you believe actually aligns with what Jesus believes and what God believes that he has communicated in his word? I really like how D.A. Carson put it, unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. We're not looking to take away doctrinal divides because the word teaches the truth of God that brings up walls of division naturally the doctrine of God's word. We want the apostolic gospel, the one that was passed to us from the disciples. True unity is achieved through belief in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That untainted gospel given through the apostles and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Don't misunderstand this. Everyone is welcome at Jerusalem church. No matter what they believe, it doesn't matter what you believe, you are still welcome here. We love unbelievers. We want them here, but we will not compromise the precious truth of God's word for fake unity. That's not loving. Our church draws doctrinal lines within which true unity thrives. In order to be a member of our church, you have to subscribe to certain doctrinal guidelines, things that you have to believe or else you're not a Christian if you don't believe those things. We stand on the truth because we believe the truth is loving and that it leads people to their greatest joy in Jesus Christ. You may have heard it said, doctrine divides. And yes, it does, but that's good that it divides. Biblical doctrine also unifies. We are one in the Father and the Son. Uh, We're going to throw up a, a little graphic here that will hopefully help you do this, but that's a great little rhyme to remember. We are one in the Father and the Son. Jesus prayed for this, verse 21, that they may all be one, and here's the key, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Then verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, here it is again, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Verse 11 is the same thing. The the oneness of the Father and the Son is foundational. Jesus said it plainly in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, yet John 1.1 explains divine unity and diversity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is only one God, yet there are three distinct persons within God who exist in eternal loving union and fellowship with each other. The word in 
describes this inseparable oneness between Father and Son. Jesus has that with his Father. And John 10, 38 said, The Father, this is Jesus, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And then at the last, uh, at the last Supper, he asked his disciples, John 14, 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And then he declared that the Father dwells in him. And he said again, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, are you ready for this? This is really good. You can't miss this. Turn it on. The Father makes us spiritually one with Him and His Son. We're talking about God being one with His creatures that He that have made a complete mess of things, and He redeems us through Jesus Christ, and He unifies us to Himself. We are one with the Father and the Son. God graciously brings us in to the deepest possible love and fellowship shared between the Father and the Son. We get to participate in that. Through that vital spiritual union with God, our spiritual oneness with each other is perfected as our oneness reflects the oneness of the Father and the Son. We do not become God but we are brought into intimate union and fellowship with God. Grace allows us to enjoy this oneness with God. Wherever you see a truth repeated by an author, you know when reading it that it's really, really important. And when you read the book of John, you're gonna see constant repetition of certain things, certain themes. He's telling you what's most important. In John 14, 20, Jesus repeated the theme, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. It's real, that oneness is real with God. It's not imaginary, it's not some crutch to get you through life. It's real, God in us, us in God, mysterious and completely life-changing. We are one so that the world may believe and know that God sent Jesus and loves us. Oneness with God in each other showcases the glory of God for the world. Our oneness is so that the world may believe that the Father has sent Jesus. Our perfect oneness in Christ is so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus and loved us even as the Father loved the Son. Our oneness with God in each other communicates something significant to the world. It communicates God's love for us. This is why disunity is so serious in the church. It draws attention away from the glory of Christ and the love of God. Take your favorite hymn. One of my favorite hymns is, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. Love that song. And then take two of the most boisterous people, maybe ever, okay, with terrible singing voices, and, and they can't sing a tune to save their life and say, we want you guys to work together to sing harmony and melody on this song and just belt it out. You just have this mess, right? What happens? Well, the depth and the beauty of the lyrics and the tune is completely lost or at least largely lost in the dissonance of their voices. It's very hard to listen to the words when the singing makes you cringe, 
Unity sings a beautiful medley of the identity of Christ and the lavish love of God. Let our oneness be a beautiful song to the world. We are one in God's glory. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And I think John 1 verse 14 is probably capturing what Jesus was saying here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was probably talking about his divine radiance as the Son of God, full of grace and truth, the the fact that he was the embodiment of the glory of God, and that through him, through his teaching and his signs and his wonders, the disciples had received the glory of God's grace and truth. Jesus said that they received words from him, and those words revealed the glory of God, the glory of his character, the glory of his essence, the glory of his being, They had even witnessed the glory of God through the signs and wonders of Jesus Christ. Have you ever sat in the front row of a riveting sports game or a play, a musical perhaps, or or, um, a concert? My sister, uh, Val, used to take me to the Hershey Bears game and, and at least on one occasion she took us right down to the ice you better believe it. Boom, boom. You pound on that ice, front row seats. It's, you're engrossed with this game. It's awesome. The disciples, think about it. They had a front row seat for the glory of God show in Jesus as they just spent time with him and watched him. They knew Jesus. They were close enough to see and to get taught and all of that. And his glory united them as one. We are one in the extravagant love of God. This is one of my favorite points. Jesus said something that you just have to hear. Listen to this phrase. And loved them even as you loved me. There's nothing better than that. God loves those whom he has given to Jesus even as he loves his own son. Divine eternal, incredible love. Adopted sons and daughters of God are loved like the eternally begotten Son of God. According to verse 24, the Father has loved the Son from before the foundation of the world. Just think about that. God's love for His Son is eternal. It is infinite. Therefore, God's love for us who are united to His Son by faith is also eternal and infinite. There is no end to God's love for you. We are a multitude of spiritual siblings extravagantly loved by God the Father. Now listen to verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus manifested the glorious name of God to the disciples and he committed to continuing to make that glorious name known to them so that the Father's extravagant love 
the same love with which he loves his son would be in them. God's extravagant love for them and God's extravagant love in them. Jesus went even further. He said, I in them. God is love, right? 1 John 4. And since Jesus is God, Jesus is love. Connect that to Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit of Jesus who has been given to us. Jesus is in us by the Holy Spirit in us. Our oneness is found in God's divine and extravagant love poured out into our hearts through the spirit of Jesus Christ. This is amazing. Jesus reveals God to us so that God's love may be in us and him in us. And the more that we believe this, the more our emotional and spiritual health will grow stronger and our unity as a church will be palpable when you walk into this place, when you see how we interact with one another, Love and unity are inseparable. Think of the Trinity. If we cannot come to know how much God loves us as one body, our love for each other will be so greatly diminished. We have to get it into our heads how much, how deep, how wide the love of God is for us because that will impact how we love each other. Do you understand this? 1 John 4.12 says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Then in verse 16, he continues, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. If we don't love each other, God does not abide in us. We must If you take two glasses of water and you pour them together, what do you get? Water. Water, just in larger amounts. Yet if you pour water and oil together, what happens? Science calls water and oil immiscible or incapable of being mixed. You can tell them apart because they don't mix. Love is how you distinguish a Christian and the world or non-Christians. Love. Love. Perhaps we should hear it again that Christians should live differently than the world. We should look different. We should love different. We should speak different. We should make different choices. We are one in God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for each other. We are one in our destiny. This is awesome. I'm so glad I'm preaching this. I think that we all love going to dinner parties. Have you ever been to a dinner party that someone that you love invites you to come to their house or something for a party or do a wedding or whatever? The, The invitation, simply receiving that invitation expresses that someone loves you and wants you to be with them. And Jesus said something amazing in verse 24. You you could say it is the purpose or the end of election. Listen to this. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Now the word desire there is noteworthy. The meaning includes both delight and determination. Jesus wants it and Jesus wills it. 
It's the same word that's used in John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. It's God's sovereign will that every gift person be with Jesus where he is forever. Jesus really, really wants that, and he will have it. He will have his people. We are one and headed to the celestial party to celebrate Jesus. Our unity on earth, especially in corporate worship like this right now, is an imperfect foretaste of the unity to come. And the reason why every person that God has given to Jesus Christ to redeem will make it, will make it to that eternal celebration of the Son because Jesus wants them there and Jesus wills them there. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise is yours. I want you with me. Being with Jesus is the party. He wants us with him. Jesus told the disciples during their last moments together, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. I want you at my table and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That was for the disciples. He told them in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus wants us with him forever. Christians live with attention. We know Christ. We love him. Yet we haven't seen him face to face. I miss him. I just, you know, I want to see him. Because it's really uncomfortable here. But it's not time. It's almost time. And that's uncomfortable, but we'll be with him soon. Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. We are foreigners in this place. We are aliens. We don't fit. Everything seems so messed up. And we're just like, man, what in the world is going on here? We're just visiting here. This is not our permanent home. But because of Christ, we are one in our eternal destination. We look forward to that destination together. We will be there. He will come for us, and we will be with him. And why is that so desirable? Because I wonder if some of you are sitting thinking, man, he's getting worked up. Why is that such a big deal? Jesus is, we are one in our seeing and savoring the glory of Jesus. Here is why Jesus desires all his gift people to be with him where he is. Jesus said, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus loves us so much that he wants to give us maximum pleasure in seeing and savoring the fullness of his glory. He wants to give us superlative pleasure, not the pleasures of earth that will just be here for a moment and then leave us perpetually disappointed. He wants to give you full joy, full pleasure forever in himself when you see the fullness of his glory. That means Jesus wants to show you something that will blow your mind forever. Jesus saves all those that God has given him so that they can be in his presence eternally 
to enjoy the fullness of his glory and the glory he has shared with God from before the foundation of the world. Psalm 16, 11 says it right. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Those forever pleasures are found in seeing the glory of Christ forever. It is Jesus that is at the right hand of God the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We are one in our greatest joy and pleasure, namely Jesus Christ forever. We share that. That's ours. That's what unifies us, him, to see his glory. Here's how you distinguish between Christians and the world. The world can't see the glory of Jesus. They don't get him. But Christians do, so just look for the people. You'll know who you're one with. Look for the people who are just astonished and blown away by Jesus Christ. You find your kin when you find others who delight in Jesus Christ above all things. There is your family. There is your people. There is the body of Christ. The world is not enthralled with Jesus. They find him dull. They find him boring. They find him a long-haired hippie. They find him obsolete. They find him irrelevant. They find him far from astonishing. And they will not enjoy him forever. They will perish. But not the elect. His glory will fill them with awe and wonder forever. And it will be 100% grace. In fact, they will be made like him. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. His glory is our glory. Lastly, we are one in Christ. Christ is our unity. He prayed, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these Know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We may have many, many differences, but we are one in Christ. Paul wrote, Though many, we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are members of each other. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus takes a mass of very different people and he makes them one, united in one thing, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He changes them from the inside out and he unifies them and makes them one with himself. That's amazing. I want to end by just sharing my heart with you. It's a simple application to the, ser- to the uh, sermon here and the sermon text. Disunity has the power to kill our church. I cannot overstate that. Disunity has the power to kill and bury our church. It's been estimated that over 4,000 churches close their doors every year. That's around 11 every day. Disunity at some level killed those churches. In every church, we have essentials and we have non-essentials. 
Essentials are the things that every church must do in order to be faithful. The the tight-fisted things that we cannot release our grip on, things like Christ-centered and biblical preaching and teaching, the sacraments, church discipline, fellowship, those must never change. We cannot touch those. They are biblical. They are good. God is pleased with them. Non-essentials are everything else. Everything else, the open hand things, the areas where we have freedom as a church to change. Things like musical style of worship, following the church calendar, Bible translations, the building layout and design, the order of worship, Sunday school versus small groups, bulletin layouts, age or sex specific ministries, and on and on and on it goes. We are always in danger as a church of prioritizing the non-essentials above the essentials, which leads to disunity and ultimately decline and even death. It's happening all over the place. We will be healthy when we eat, drink, and sleep the essentials of our faith and then work together in humility and unselfishness to best align those non-essentials with our mission and what we think best will advance us in the cause of Christ to make disciples of Jesus. If our oneness is in Christ alone, we can still love each other. We can still work together in our mission even if we differ over some non-essentials. I hope you agree with that. Back in 1627, Rupertus Meldenius wrote this important sentence, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In essentials, unity, tight fist, in non-essentials, liberty, open hand, and in all things, charity. I'm asking each of you to do three simple things. I'm actually begging, I'm not going to get down on my knees, but I'm begging that you as a church do these three things. Number one, unify around the essentials. Unify around Christ. Unify around the word. Unify in his mission to reach lost people. Unify around the essentials. Number two, hold the non-essentials very loosely. Hold the non-essentials very loosely. Please understand that in order to better accomplish our mission as a church, we might change some things that you really love. We might change some things that have been here for a long time. That's not because we don't love you, and that's not because we don't love this church. It's because we want to be more focused. We want to be more faithful. We want to be more fruitful for God's glory. There are great reasons to change things. And I know you agree with me because we have changed locations as a church, perhaps multiple times. We have had four different buildings as a church. We have changed our church name five different times. We left the United Church of Christ in 2007 because we had something better. We saw that there was more fruit. We saw the liberalism and the uh, deviation from the gospel, and we knew there was a better way, so you united together and you left. I wasn't here. There are good reasons to make changes. Change often leads to growth. If you don't like certain changes here, just know I understand. I understand. It's not hatred. It's love for Jesus. 
trying to see our church get healthy. Here's what you do if you don't like some of the changes. Try to understand them. Try to understand them. Try to understand why we would make some of those changes and see if you can't connect them to the advance of the gospel. See if you can't connect them to a way that we're trying to be healthier. Let's think less about ourselves and more about the next generation. Amen? Let's think less about ourselves and more about the people outside here that don't know Jesus Christ. What can we do to strategically change in order to, not essentials. We're not talking about that. We're talking about non-essentials. Hold the non-essentials loosely. Number three, love, 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 love. Love each other. We are one in Christ. Disunity could kill our church, Jerusalem. So love one another. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jerusalem church, put others before yourself. The church is not you. The church is us. My vision is that because we are one in Christ, we would unify around the essentials. Hold the non-essentials very loosely. Love each other in the process and make whatever changes are necessary to best advance our mission to leading more people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God. And if it will help us do that, we will change. We will. And we'll do it together, and we'll do it with love, and we will grow. Now, I can't make it grow. You can't make it grow. But God can, and I think he will honor that when we honor the essentials, when we honor Christ, when we honor the gospel. We can do it, but we gotta be one. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your clear word. We love your word, we cherish your word, we believe your word, and God, as as I lay this out before us, as we look at, at the conclusion of John 17, we have a word from you, directly from you, that we are one in Christ, and that you have unified us to make a declaration of Christ to the world. And so I just pray that, God, we would not be destroyed by disunity at this church, that through thick and thin, we will stick together, love each other, even in our differences, but that we'd work it out and understand that we are one in Christ, united as a team, and that we would move ahead together. Lockstep, kind of like Gabe and Jeremiah picking up that ball. Unify us, God, so that we can be more faithful, more focused, more fruitful to your mission. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.